Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you again for attending the 2020 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Tim Miller. I'm a first year MBA. And it's my absolute pleasure to introduce our next panel, Blockchain, Technology, and Sports. On our panel, we have Jonathan Kraft, president of the Kraft Group, Mitch Lasky, partner at Benchmark and co-owner of the LAFC, Steve Peliuka, co-owner of the Boston Celtics, and Jason Robbins, uh, co-founder and CEO of DraftKings. Our moderator today is Saz Cherin, who is the head of Fanatics Ventures. This panel will last 45 minutes with an additional 10 minutes for Q&A. Um, please submit questions for our panel uh, through Twitter using the hashtag moving the blockchains. Now over to you, Saj. Thanks, Tim. It's uh, MIT and, and really back here in person. We are fortunate to have an all-star panel of industry sports leaders who are entrepreneurs, team owners, and investors. No one better to talk blockchain and get the substance behind all the buzzwords, from crypto and NFTs to the metaverse and DAOs, what does it all mean for those of us sitting at the intersection of sports and technology? Who will emerge as the winners and losers? Let's get started. Let's ask our panel. Let me actually start with Jonathan, uh, owner of the six-time champion New England Patriots and president of the Kraft Group, the Kraft Group. The last time we were all together at Sloan was for the Sports Analytics Conference was 2020, and uh, the blockchain barely registered uh, on my panel uh, on investing in sports, and I think few people actually knew what an NFT really was. Uh, so much has changed in the last two years, and um, even more so in the blockchain. So Jonathan, when did you start paying attention to the blockchain, and uh, maybe take us back to that first moment you know, when you heard of NFTs. When did you realize that they were real? Well, that was two separate moments in time, but uh, probably early in 17, I started reading a lot about Bitcoin. So I was more conscious of Bitcoin than anything else. But the more I read about Bitcoin, the more I realized I wasn't sold on crypto. I may have changed my opinion on that since then, but I got really excited about um, blockchain technology, and I started thinking, we're in a lot of different businesses all over the world in addition to sports, where chain of custody and paperwork are just really inefficient. And, and so that was the moment in time I started being cognizant of the blockchain and its power, and it really hit me that I thought eventually, I mean, today it's not a secret, but that all business applications in the future would likely sit on um, a blockchain. And um, that year, we had actually had a big problem at the Super Bowl the year before. So I can honestly tell you that in 2017, I sat with Roger, and we even had a meeting with Live Nation um, when Jared was the CEO and, and talked about that year potentially putting the Super Bowl ticket on the blockchain. Now, it wasn't gonna work if nothing was set up for that, but so that would have been the first time I, I, I really thought about the blockchain from a business perspective, 17. And then, like everybody else, fourth quarter of 20, probably the whole thing of NFTs came into my consciousness. So, so Steve, you're our other local Boston team owner. Managing general partner and co-owner of the 17-time uh, world champion Boston Celtics. When did you first start paying attention to the blockchain generally and NFTs more specifically? Well, I've been doing technolo technology investing for Bain Capital for, I don't know, about 25 or 30 years now. So uh, unfortunately, I had a friend come to me in 2010 and said, this thing called Bitcoin is going to be a big thing. <laughs> and uh, I think it was, it was selling for uh, maybe even cents. It was probably a couple dollars. And he said, you ought to put 1% of your net worth in it. And I said, you, are, you, you gotta, I studied a little bit, and I said, Jesus, it's not really money. It's not backed by government, all the classic arguments. And, and so had I, had, I, no, had I done that, I'd be a very happy man right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, but I studied it a little bit like Jonathan because 
crypto is one thing, and we can have a whole separate discussion about, about Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana uh, uh, as a uh, you know, kind of a monetary instrument. But blockchain is another thing, which, which I think one buzzword you didn't mention is Web3, which is kind of in the underpinning technology of what will happen in Web3 because you can do authentication and you can also put a lot more utility on, on, on things on there. And you do, it's, it's clear accounting without a middleman. So it's going to really increase efficiency and have lots of applications for lots of businesses, including the sports business. And you've already seen that um, in NFTs, in DAOs that are trying to buy the Constitution. Maybe, maybe a DAO will buy a team someday. So do, you, do you think a DAO can really buy a team? I think it's happening. I mean, I think people are thinking about it. It's like, you know, what you've seen in Mexico, I think, uh, one of the club, uh, the Liga MX teams just sold a 1% interest, um, you know, off of, a, uh, off of an NFT, essentially. There's no reason you could, it couldn't happen. I think, it's, I think it'll happen sooner as opposed to later. Yeah, and, and, and can you, so, Mitch, you're our West Coast owner uh, with LAFC. Um, so who shows up to the uh, MLS Board of Governors meeting? Not me. <laughs> no, but I'm saying if, you, if there was a DAO. Oh, when, the, when it's a DAO? The, the DAO will have a... Yeah, DAO they'll, have a, they'll elect a representative. representative. Elected representatives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No different than a, than a corporation. So the, 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 the key issue with the DAO, if it was ever to, to, to own a franchise, control a franchise, would be, you know, you'd have to think about how voting would affect it because I know when we bought the Celtics, you know, people were clamoring to... A DAO might have fired Doc Rivers. He turned out to be one of the best coaches the Celtics ever had. Uh, you know, and, and the Dow might have fired Doc Rivers. So you'd have to have somebody, you know, you know, saying total democracy probably doesn't work in running a sports franchise, but certainly Dallas could own minority positions and have a representative on, on maybe a board. Wow. Um, so that, that, that's going to be interesting to see if, uh, if that comes to fruition. So, so Mitch, um, you've been investing in, in the blockchain for some time. You know, what do you see as kind of the killer app, you know, on the blockchain? And, you know, have we seen it yet? So I don't think we've seen it yet. Yeah, so I, like these gentlemen, my, in my entry was Bitcoin. Um, I read, you know, being a West Coast nerd, I read the, the Satoshi white paper in probably 2012 and actually did put 1% of my net worth into Bitcoin in 2013, although my net worth is probably a lot lower than yours. So... Um, you should have called me. <laughs> called so that was good for me. I and, did the uh, same thing, but it was a lot lower than both of yours. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're all doing okay. So that was my introduction to it. And then uh, I, you know, I've kept uh, up on, on the various uh, cryptocurrencies that launched. I, I was, got very interested in Ethereum when it came to market. Um, I've been looking very carefully at the, at the NFT space. I have my reservations. I'm not as all in as some of my peers in the Valley, um, but, uh, but, but I am really interested in it. And, and I, I agree that there are many blockchain applications beyond the things we've seen um, that are gonna have huge implications in the sports business and in the business business. So that's sort of my perspective. I think it's important, that, like Jonathan, when you think about NFTs, how do you define an NFT? Well, that's, I think curation is every, because the curation is, is everything. James White on the Patriots on a third and five, if he catches a pass and gains six yards, it's a nice moment in a game. I personally don't think it's a collectible unless maybe you know, you made a proposition bet on that play and you made a ton of money and you want to remember it. I, I don't think it's memorable and it's worth owning, but if you own Adam Vinatieri's kick to win our first Super Bowl, that's worth a lot of money. So I, I personally, I think it, it's, it, it has to be a much more curated space, but then an NFT can be anything. And when, when tickets, all tickets move to the blockchain and you have a wallet, you know, one of the things that we'll be able to do, uh, growing up, I used to go to games with my dad all the time, Patriots games, my brothers and I, Celtics games, and those were the two teams we used to go to constantly. And you'd bring home ticket stubs, and I have a shoebox with them in it. But if I could have a digital wallet with the ticket stub from that game and maybe 30 seconds of highlights, but also opted in to have my picture taken in my seats, and that's, that gets dropped to me the day after the game. Not a selfie, but a picture of my dad and my brothers and I sitting there, and I could pull out a digital wallet today. It has tremendous value to me. It'd have no value to anybody else, but I'd love to have that, and that's a version of an NFT that I haven't really heard people talk about, but that in a lot of ways builds a connection between fans and a team, and 
Anyhow, I'm, I'm the least smart example. person to talk about this up here, but that would be my take on well, that. The ticket example is a good one because the ticket in of itself is an NFT. NFT is non-fungible, so right. it's right. not like you know the same ticket can be exchanged or interchangeable with another. It's a unique thing. So even just the stub itself, and if you add the things Jonathan's describing, that's what I think is so cool about the space that, yes, you can look at it as a collectible, but you can add utility and other things that are not possible um, in the non-blockchain world. And it's unique um, to that. So like Bitcoin, you can have one Bitcoin. It's the same as my Bitcoin. What makes the ticket an NFT is there's only one of them. It's non-fungible. Um, but I think where you were going with the other sorts of things you can add to it is what excites me. I think we're in the very early phase. And you know, believe me, NFTs is not going to be just about profile picks and collectibles. There's going to be a lot more. I think it's going to create interchangeability or um, uh, interoperability, I should say, between different types of systems. So you could buy an NFT that's usable in multiple different video games or things like that. Um, but the whole point is I think you can attach utility to it and you can create some ongoing you know, mechanism to continue adding value over and over again as opposed to a physical thing, which just is what it is. It's a physical thing. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Uh, you know, to me, it all starts with the, with, with the sports fan, the customer, as Jonathan was saying. And blockchain you know, will allow you, A, to authenticate that it's a real ticket. Uh, it allows utility where you can add value. If, if, you, if you can count that, you know, you know, Jonathan and his dad went to 50 Celtics games, and then we give them an extra <laughs> Larry Bird shirt or Jason Tatum jersey because they've gone to 50 games. Uh, take, take pictures. You can catalog all those games and, and, and put them in, put them in, a, in kind of a, a digital wallet uh, display. Uh, so I think the blockchain will, will really get fan engagement even higher and be great for all the sports leagues. Yeah, well, Steve, you, you, you mentioned starting with the uh, sports fan. That's something that, you know, at Fanatics, we, we always do. And, you know, I, I sit on the board of um, Candy Digital, which is our NFT business at Fanatics. And we've been following, you know, the moves by other companies, Dapper Labs, or Rare, Socios, and uh, along with a, a lot of uh, new entrants. And um, all together, these companies have fueled interest in NFTs. I think the trading volume at the end of 2021 was something like $25 billion. But there's only 400,000 current active uh, wallets. So the question, you know, and, and maybe, um, maybe we actually go to the audience real quick. Um, how many of you actually own uh, an NFT by a show of hands? Okay. Oh, Much higher percentage. Than I would wow. yeah. yeah. So, so I, I think- They uh, should be up here. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But you know it's interesting. So Jason, you know, as our uh, as a founder and CEO of DraftKings, how do we move beyond you know the hands that were up in this uh, in this room, the early crypto uh, adopters, and get the rest of the folks whose hands weren't up, and then the average sports fan? How do we get them into um, you know in, into this crypto space? Oh, well, I think that there's a few things, um, but probably the the most obvious one is uh, UI based, ease of use based. So. You know, if I go and try and buy an NFT on OpenSea, I have to have a wallet, MetaMask or whatever. I have to purchase okay. Ethereum. If I want to bid on an auction, I have to convert it to WETH. Um, and that's very complicated for a lot of people. And what we did when we launched our marketplace, we offer NFTs to a partner of ours called Autograph, uh, where we have NFTs for Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, Wayne Gretzky, all these great athletes and more. Um, and we just did a deal with the NFLPA, and we have you know, uh, a lot of things we're doing in this space like I know you guys are. And we made it a point to say, you can deposit with a credit card. You can use the same funds that you have in your DraftKings account already. You don't need to have a crypto wallet. Now, ironically, we're getting a lot of people now coming to us and saying, hey, we want to buy it with crypto, which we eventually will enable. Um, but I think we consciously took the route of saying the number one thing that we think makes it you know, less accessible to people is how hard it is for the average person who's used to, on any online platform or mobile platform, just taking out their credit card and making a purchase to go through the multiple steps you have to go through. Um, and once they're in, they're in, but that's a tough conversion flow. The second thing I think is just to have more and more adoption of mainstream institutions. When I hear Jonathan talking about conversations with the commissioner of the NFL about making the Super Bowl ticket available on the blockchain, that's going to have some effect beyond just the Super Bowl. It's mainstreaming something that isn't mainstream yet. Um, so I think that's another big thing. It's just institutional adoption and more and more parts of the ecosystem promoting and supporting it. You know, I think uh, 
it's going to change. It'll probably change rapidly. There's a company called MoonPay that, that I'm an investor in my family also invested into, and that kind of automates the entire process of, of getting a wallet and, 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 be, and accessing uh, digital currencies and trading digital currencies. Um, and right now, part of the issue is the gas fees are very high in, in those currencies, so you lose, you lose a lot of value. So making it easier to kind of onboard people into the system would, would be, I think, a, a high priority, and that's, that's going to happen. Uh, I think as there, more, as there are more use cases, as I think we'll talk a little bit later about if you want to call it the metaverse or metaverse is building up, there'll be more use cases where people will, will want to do it. And then finally, uh, when Patriots and Celtics have programs that have NFTs and, and, and tie-in fans into value, people will want to do it. And, and, and there are companies like SoRare that have kind of blended cards, soccer cards, with a game format. So it's kind of like curation meets That's draft like what games. we're doing with the NFLPA. Yeah, yeah so, so same, same kind of thing you're doing. I'm an investor in that company as well, and I think they've got some exciting things going on. So I think more and more people will want to get in the space, and, the, and then if the space is, is uh, uh, well-defined and, and easy to get into, you know, you'll see blossoming. Yeah. So Steve, you're on the NBA blockchain committee. Um, is there a role for leagues and teams in you know, um, spurring fan adoption? Yeah, ab absolutely. I, I think the great thing for, for blockchain, if we can get there with ticketing, is, is it just makes it easier on everybody. It's, it has the authentication and it has the ability to, to, to really make a ticket be a fan token that, that, that has utility to it. So uh, we're talking about all the kinds of uses that, that we, we could do with that. And I think all the sports leagues are going to probably, probably lead the way in that as the future goes on. Jonathan, I see you nodding. Um, what's your perspective? Well, I've always, I've known Steve for 35 years or so, and I always nod when he talks because he's <laughs> always right. So, uh, You're too kind. It, it, <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I've, everything Steve is saying is right. I think the one, the one thing about blockchain technology that we want to be sure, teams have just started to really collect great data about their fan bases, but email and texting aren't, you, you, you need them to interact with you. You, you. you don't always get the interaction that you want. I think when you're on, block, on the blockchain, you, you lose some of the information about that fan, you gain some other information, you, maybe you lose some of the demographic type of information unless they volunteer it in another way, but the connection to them, I think, is more dynamic. And, more and engagement, so, more engagement. More engagement, that's dynamic. You see, he's always been correcting me, 35 <laughs> years still. No, but it, it, he's right, engagement, that's what, by dynamic, that was what I was trying to imply. And I think it's gonna be incumbent upon sports teams to, to figure out the best way to, to, to migrate to the medium of the blockchain and take full advantage of it. But the opportunities that exist there are dramatically greater uh, than I think exists without it. And I don't know, Jason, I, I've, I've been wondering, and I know I've known Jason a long time, but I haven't really talked to him about, could he, could he affect or create some type of peer-to-peer -peer betting on a blockchain that they oversee so that they're still a part of the transaction? And I, because I, it would seem to me that that might make sense too. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is going to be regulation because um, from a pure like technology standpoint, um, you're already seeing projects around the world pop up like that. Uh, you know, one thought I had was like um, the way Uniswap sort of disrupted, and I know that's under some regulatory scrutiny too, the exchange where basically if you go on Uniswap, um, you can deposit into the pool. And the way that they fund a transaction is instead of having a centralized institution clear it, um, let's say I want to buy a coin using Ethereum. Somebody else has deposited that coin in Ethereum into the pool, and I go and I buy it, and they remove it from the pool, and the transaction fee, the commission, is split amongst the pool participants. So could you do the same thing in betting, where if you wanted to be able to take very large bets or things like that, you could have deposits into a pool where people would say, we trust your odds, we're going to make money over the long term, and we're going to fund that for a small piece of the VIG. Um, and that's an idea I think you would see us doing already if it weren't for regulatory constraints. So that's the big issue. And by the way, that's different country to country. You're already seeing decentralized betting products in different parts of the world. Um, whether U.S. regulators in the various states will allow it will remain to be seen. I think some of the concerns that 
are present in general with crypto will translate over to um, you know, regulator, regulatory concerns on the betting side. Plus, um, shockingly uh, to say, uh, governments aren't always ahead of the curve and moving that quickly. Um, although you are seeing now, which I find really interesting, um, you know, the tragedy happening in Ukraine is, is awful, but um, the Ukrainian government on their official social media feeds is literally raising money via crypto. And you're seeing all kinds of donations coming through crypto uh, founders like Gavin with Polkadot and stuff like that. Um, and he donated like $5 million in, in DOT. Um, so it's really interesting now watching because you have to imagine that the Russians are trying to somehow you know, stop any actual donations coming through. I don't know this. I'm just guessing why they'd be using crypto coming through like traditional banking sources. But you can't stop it on the blockchain. For, which is good and bad, depending upon who's good on and the bad, other side of the I want to go back to the, your earlier question, because I do think it's, it's worth not glossing over this problem of, of, of friction around the wallet. Um, because it's, it's easy to just, to just make the assumption that it's going to solve itself and uh, everybody's going to ultimately have a crypto wallet. It's like there's a lot of nuance to that, right? I mean, the, like private key management has proved to be much more difficult than I think everybody thought at the beginning of this. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of hacking, there's a lot of theft, there's a lot of problems that, that aren't necessarily inherent to the system. People think, oh, it's a crypto problem, but it's really a private key management problem. It's like people just aren't good at that. It's like they're not good at their password hygiene on their, on their computers either, right? They're, they pick dumb passwords that are easy to hack. They do the same, you know, all around the world. So I think we, we really have to think, I mean, the solutions to this are going to be really significant. I mean, we're also early institutional investors and so rare. And you know, just saw the most recent numbers, and the, the top line numbers are extraordinary. But it's still a fairly small number of, of accounts that are generating that volume. And I think there's a danger, and I think it's, it's a danger that's also inherent in the fact that a lot of this early NFT transaction volume is coming from people who were early ETH adopters. So they're playing with house money, right? They're, they're, they're not, it's not necessarily hundreds of thousands of dollars of fiat that's being converted into ETH and then dumped into NFTs. A lot of it is money that came from early ETH adoption that's already highly appreciated and is being used to buy these assets. So we got a whale problem, essentially, as we would say in the video game business. Um, and, and I think we need to be very cognizant of that whale problem because we got to cross that before it's going to... A lot of the things we've been talking about on this panel that are really exciting are going to be able to be realized. And I also, I also think we're, we're probably in a speculative bubble period in general yeah. with a uh, huge increase in the money supply, unprecedented increase in the money supply, um, you know, in, in my lifetime at least. Um, and, and, and that has blown up the values of everything and there's lots of money chasing lots of deals. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, 90% of the F NFTs went, crashed, went down in value. If you remember, many of you don't remember, but the internet in, uh, in 1999, uh, I probably looked at 50 internet deals, and it was such a frenzy that you would sit down and they'd say, here's a term sheet, we have an internet company to revolutionize healthcare, here's what it does, uh, the value is, is, is 40 million, you have to decide in the next hour, do you want to invest? So in 1999, Bain Capital did zero investments, because that just wasn't, you know, we, we thought we had failed, that just wasn't our style, but then there was a crash, and, and then kind of the, the, the good companies emerged from that and people got more rational, I think we're kind of in that frenzy period right now where anybody with an idea for uh, uh, you know, a, an ape or, or an NFT or, or, or something to do with Bitcoin or blockchain, you know, there's being huge values being play, paid and there's a lot of speculative uh, customers. So you got to get through that speculation period and get down what Jonathan was talking about, the core value of, of what these technologies are. Well, like the internet bubble, the key issue that you noted is there, everything is being thrown into the hype. There's not separation of like what are actually the really good companies and which ones aren't. I also think the point Mitch was making around hacking and other issues, one of the things that I, I believe is, um, and I know the purists don't like this, but I think full decentralization on mass scale is not a realistic concept because you know, for example, I could buy an NFT for $10 million and then accidentally transfer it to someone else and there's no recourse because there's no centralized um, you know, place that's clearing it and making sure. Um, and I think that in general, if you don't have some form of centralization on a mass scale, there's no one to hold accountable, which will make governments have a real problem with things like finance going to full decentralization. Um, so I think that the idea of like full decentralization of everything is a little bit different 
than the idea of utilizing blockchain technology, which you know, is, I think, often interchangeably used with decentralization. Particularly important in the game space, too. What people, I think, have a mistaken assumption that games are a natural fit for, for blockchain and for crypto and NFTs. I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult than people think. There's a lot of resistance from gamers, and in particular just socially, around NFTs. That can be overcome, I think. But your point about decentralization is a really important one. You have to be, as the, as, as the manager of the game, able to make you know, fundamental, profound changes to keep competitive balance. And making those changes is going to be very difficult in a fully decentralized sort of Dow-run environment where those changes have material impact on people who are holding early holders of, of the NFTs and cryptocurrencies that are, that, are, that are built into those games. So there's a lot of work to be done. And I think it's very exciting for that reason. Well, it seems like, you know, we've talked about a number of these challenges, right? So you're talking about the hacking and, and the lack of ability to control private keys, the fact that, you know, there's this sort of move to Uber decentralization. Um, in the world of sports, you know, who are the actors? Who's going to help? Um, like, could it be those of us in sports to help, you know, bring on the sports fans and then by, by, by virtue of that, you know, kind of the, the mass, you know, consumer. Because right now, as we've talked about this, it's early adopters, early crypto adopters, people that went through all the, the hassles of getting these ETH wallets and going to MetaMask and just going through all these gyrations. So I guess the question is, A, can sports, in, can, can, can bodies or organizations within sports be a catalyst for getting the average uh, fan, you know, into this? Or is it something that we're just going to have to wait uh, for other actors outside of sports to kind of make it safe for, 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 for the sport? I think the, I think the onboarding is going to get easier. And, and then the real issue is going to be, can we in sports create something of value to the consumers that they'll want to be on it? Can the gaming companies create metaverses that are of value to the consumer? Um, and again, we're in a speculative phase now, but there will be ones that emerge to say, this is a, you know, I, I want to I go pick uh, five different teams and, and have a league with my friends and play in this league and go to these stadiums and see them online. Someone will, there, there'll be three or four companies, I think, that emerge as winners in this. And then masses of people will come on. And by that time, the onboarding should be easier. So it's more to me a question of, 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 of how can we create value for fans that they'll want to get on the blockchain to use the technologies. So one of the you know, organizations that, or institutions, or I don't know what, what you would call it, Mitch, but Discord, right, yep. is, is one of those communities, right, that you're, you've, you've been an investor in, you're on the board of. Yep. Um, and it's and, um, yeah, It's interesting. The, it's functioning it, almost right? kind of like a Bloomberg slash NASDAQ for, for NFTs and, and cryptocurrency. It's very bizarre. And it was not the, the original. I mean, it's an emergency. So, so, so tell us about, like, when you decided to invest in Discord. Is it a competitor to QAnon or what? <laughs> Tell us about. It's basically it's basically a. You can think of it as like Skype meets Slack, originally intended for game commun gaming communities to sort of self-organize. It was a way for, for example, a World of Warcraft clan to plan a raid, and you could get together in a in a chat room and 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 exchange ideas and 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 sort of prep, and then all go into the game together, and then it, it functions as a voice channel once you're in the game. That was its original intended use. Um, but it became uh, sort of much more, much more useful in some ways to, to sort of DeFi and to, and to um, crypto in, in, in a lot of ways. And so a lot of the NFTs are, are, are dropped there. A lot of the information about the, 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 the NFTs and the currencies are, are, are posted there. And we've got now dozens of, of servers that, are, that have 300, 400, 500,000 members um, around particular kind of communities of interest around NFTs, which is remarkable. Gary Vee has a 300,000 member uh, Discord server, uh, just sort of dedicated to his, his, uh, his NFT stuff. So that's where we are with it. It's, uh, I, mean, in, I mean, you know, back to your original point about sort of the low number of wallets. In the fourth quarter, we started tracking sort of where, uh, what the first server was that people were going to once they joined Discord as a new member, as a new ad, somebody who'd never been on the platform before. Uh, and in the fourth quarter, a significant percentage of those users, you know, several million, uh, went to their first server as a crypto server, which is really, which really encouraging in a lot of ways. So is Discord where we're going to find those, you know, potential sports fans, you know, that we can migrate over to uh, actually, you know, 
holding NFTs? I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case, but it does give me, uh, it does encourage me to know that we're starting to see real numbers right. um, in, in, some of, in, in some of those communities, numbers that would really be able to support some of the ideas we've been discussing. Right. So I do think, though, sports as mobile ticketing, which isn't blockchain ticketing, but it's mobile and it's not, you know, 55, 65-year-old season ticket holders who for 30 or 40 years have been used to that piece of paper. And we're in the Northeast, so for Celtic season ticket holders or Patriot season ticket holders, it was a bigger deal, and understandably so. Um, but we've been all mobile the last two years, and we've talked to a lot of people, and even the older season ticket holders now say it makes game day more convenient, and as long as we're going to mail them um, paper tickets after the season for their keepsake, because they don't understand, they, they want that keepsake, they're good with it. So when you take that coupled with cashless concessions and everything else in the stadium, if you think about it, sports across the country, the, the hundreds of millions of people that go to these venues, I really do think it's the first mass market sort of mainstream thing that's driving you to live in the digital world. And the next step beyond that is when we put it all on blockchain technology. So I do think, coming back to what you asked, Saj, that, that sports can help drive the adoption of blockchain technology and, and probably de facto you could put that into crypto because I think those people will then be more comfortable with the idea of crypto and experimenting with something. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. And, and sports already are communities. You know, you're, you're, sports is tribal. You know, sports you grew up with your whole life. And, and really blockchain and, and, and crypto is about creating communities. And that's what Discord has, has done. And they're, they're kind of you know, talking about what's worth this and what's, was this, is this worthwhile? Is a board ape worth more than this or that? Um, and, and, so, and so, you know, sports is probably a nexus that will drive some of this because we already have a great community. We have Patriots Nation, Celtics Nation, Red Sox Nation. Um, and then and someday it'll, it'll all cross, probably it'll be all, yeah. all sports in, in, yeah. in this. And I think it's tangible in a way that a lot of these other things that aren't, right? I think that's really important. Um, so we've been talking a lot about the value of collectability, uh, but is there a ceiling on NFTs if we stop there at, at collectability? Is it, does it really need ticketing or other forms of utility to really, um, you know, to really grow and, and, um, and gain you know, broader adoption? And sports collectibles and memorabilia is what, six billion? Uh, yeah, it's a big category. It's a pretty big yeah. category. So I mean, it would, you, could, you could imagine some really valuable companies that even if that was all it ended up being, some valuable companies being created. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, two, I think it's two separate things. You know, they're, they're, uh, uh, NFTs as, as collectibles, Jonathan talked about curation. Right. There's going to be some moments that are, that are worth an incredible amount. It may be Vinatieri's kick in the snow, the, the tuck game, um, you know, Larry, Larry Bird's last three. Those will, those will be worth a lot of money just as, as, as kind of almost like digital cards. But then smart contracts and all the capabilities, utility you can add on, onto uh, a picture or an NFT or a ticket, that's a separate category that can, can use as a function of a fan club, communications, um, extra benefits you get at a game, jerseys that you get mailed for certain. You know, Mark Cuban, which is kind of weird, we don't have this in, it's funny, we don't have this in Boston, but in Dallas, people show up very late for their games. So they issued, they said, if you come before the end of the first quarter, we're gonna issue, issue a special <laughs> NFT. <laughs> and I said, God, in the Celtics things, we have to keep people out. They want to come two hours before the game, so that's the last thing we would do. But they have an NFT if you show up before the end of the first quarter. So he's now got people. Are people coming early? Yeah, people are, people are now coming early. Just or on time, at least before the on, end of the first quarter. Yeah, they're, they're coming in the first quarter, at least so they can cheer for the club. And, uh, and so he's got utility out of that, and then they get extra, some special extra benefits. So owners are kind of using these things you know, to, to kind of get fans together and unite them. We'll find different uses for them, I think, up here. But, uh, but it creates a whole new category of, again, fan engagement. I agree with Mitch. Collectibles, huge category. Sports collectibles, a huge category. But that's not going to be the end. That's already not where you can see things going. I mean, it's very clear right now it's moving in a utility-based direction. 
Um, one of the things I love, by the way, about any kind of new technology is how fast it moves. And I think everybody went in the last like year, year and a half from what's an NFT to now, where is it going? Um, and I think it's very clearly moving in the utility direction, whether that's you know, even taking some of the older ones, like you mentioned Bored Apes. People who own Bored Apes can get access to events and parties and things. That's utility. That's a reason beyond just I like this picture and I want it on my Twitter profile to own it. Um, I think that the same thing's happening. You use SoRare and what we're doing with our NFLPA fantasy game. Like You're going to be able to use that NFT. Yes, it's a great collectible, and I'm sure people will buy it purely as a collectible, but other people will play the game with it. And by playing the game, you can win money. You can win other NFTs. Um, so this whole play to earn or play to win model, um, play to earn is probably something everybody's heard, I think is a big part of the future of NFTs and of uh, blockchain. Yeah, AC, AC, for example, is uh, I think powering the economy of the Philippines right now. People, people are making more money per month yeah. uh, pay to earn on AC than they are with regular jobs. Um, and it's increased employment dramatically. Now, I don't know if that, that bubble will pop at some point in time. And, and the I have a question for you guys. Why, why do you think a board ape is worth you know three hundred sixty thousand dollars and a you know board pigeon's worth nothing? Who determines? Well, I don't that, think how that these things break, how these things break through. Apes are cool. it's a market. Same way, like why is a piece of art worth anything or even you know a stock? It's whatever the market thinks it's worth. Mm -hmm. Personally, why do I think that certain things are worth more? I think that um, same reason as any collectible. Why is a Mickey Mantle rookie card worth more? Just because. People, or why is it worth whatever it's worth? People have decided via the normal mechanisms of a market how much they're willing to buy and sell it for. Well, I mean, I think Bored Apes came out was one of the first drops. So I think there's some cachet to having a Bored Ape. There is, and there they, was one of the first ones after, but the really old school one like that really took off was Crypto. crypto yeah, Crypto. Yeah. yeah, but Bored Apes, like, one, I think Bored Apes were like the first ones that sort of went beyond just collectible and said, we're gonna start, like, that we're mainstream. I think that the club idea, the sort yeah. of access to the private club thing is a really important driver of that as well. Exactly. There are also, there are also board apes, they're talking about uh, making cartoons with that and then you're gonna get a royalty if you own a board ape and they select your board ape and people are running out their board apes. It's becoming a, it's whole ecosystem. Well, there's a belief there, and you're right. I don't think I actually really like the Board Apes team, so I don't think it's going to happen there. But when you're talking about speculation and bubble, there is a belief that when people are buying these things, that there's going to be some added utility, some added value down the road, but they don't know what it is. And a very common thing in the crypto community or in the blockchain community when you launch a new project is to map out sometimes with mystery exactly what it's going to be. Here's the next five things we're going to do. So people buy into it thinking there's gonna be these additional layers of value creation and just like buying a stock of a company, at some point it comes down to does that team execute well and do they actually create more value in reality with the things that they're adding. I think what the Board Ape team has done and Mitch is right, that whole club aspect is they branded around that and they've made it so that it's a status symbol and you get access to things. Um, and the reason people put them just like other things in their profile pics is it's completely a status symbol um, you know, I think the fact that you see such engagement on Discord is the community reinforcing we're the cool kids, even though it's probably not actually the cool kids, me being one of them. Um, but we're the cool ones that actually own this or are part of this. And um, just like any, you know, it's a human thing, like any social structure, people are drawn to that. It's really the scarcity, right? I mean, uh, they were very smart yeah, about exclusivity, yeah. you know, creating that exclusivity and then the access and the cachet sort of stemmed from that scarcity. And so, um, so Mitch, I want to go back to you because we're, we're talking about utility and really I want to talk about the ultimate utility, which is gaming, right? And you were a mobile gaming entrepreneur uh, before you went to the dark side as a VC. <laughs> now, I was a former yeah. VC, so I, I can say that. Um, but gaming um, between, you know, what some of the play to earn, you know, um, games that Jason mentioned, um, the in-game, you know, digital asset ownership, um, you know, where do you see the most potential from gaming coming into the blockchain? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we're seeing a lot of projects. I've, I've met with a lot of the companies. I met with Axie uh, relatively early on. Um, I have been somewhat hesitant and, or, or just looking at some of these things with my gaming background because a lot of them, a lot of the entrepreneurs who've come into this space have come in from the crypto side rather than from the gaming side. And I think they grossly underestimate the complexity of creating 
high quality oh, games. Yeah. I mean, I think the Axie guys did a really smart thing, which was basically not try and innovate too much, right? They basically made a Pokemon game um, and, and built in a lot of play to earn components into that game. And as you said, there, I think there's 75, 80,000 people in the Philippines who are basically making a living on it um, at, at this point. So. The problem is it depends on the next guy wanting to buy yeah, there is there is a little bit of by the creatures of, that you create. Yeah, yeah. Um, and although there have been interesting things that have have happened, there's a there's a gaming guild, for example, that has grown up alongside of Axie, that basically owns the NFTs and loans them to players uh, who are, who don't have the the resources to buy them, and allows them to sort of farm those resources and pay a royalty back to the to the gaming guild. So there's all kinds of interesting. The next guy's got to buy it. The next person's got to buy it at some point. Those things. Yeah. And so the question is, will the music stop at some point? Right. Of, of new players coming in. You know, you could, you know, if you take it to, to, to its extreme, you could say Axie's a Ponzi scheme because... You could. It, I mean, you could say crypto broadly is a Ponzi scheme. Isn't that true of any market, though? <laughs> that you need people to be willing to continue to come in and buy at higher prices to drive prices up? You know, I, I wouldn't say it's the same as crypto. Bitcoin may be a digital version of gold, and gold isn't a Ponzi scheme, so there's a limited amount of Bitcoin. Well, I'm not saying it's a Ponzi scheme. I'm more saying the concept that there has to be demand outplacing supply to make any market rise. Yeah. Absolutely, but when the music stops and, and, and you're, you know, you're, you're breeding on these farms and you have a loan to pay, you're going to have a real yeah, problem. No, fair enough. I mean, I think the other, going back to something Jason said earlier about sort of interop between games using uh, NFTs as, a, as, a, as basically a, a, a means of exchange between games, that I'm also, uh, I think that sort of remains an open question. It's, it's hard to do technically. Very hard to do technically, yeah. extremely hard. Now, in the case of So Rare, where you, you could imagine a platform where multiple uh, game makers could make <clears throat> games using the same card, that, that that's what I'm talking about. But, it, but like what I hear people talking about where they're like, oh, I'll buy a gun in Call of Duty and use it no. in Fortnite. Fortnite, that's bullshit. Yeah. That's never. No, I was talking about what you were talking about, more of like an open source where you say, I can create a platform where we're going to create the content and anyone who wants. There's um, a company, uh, the name's Escape, Mythical Games. Yeah. Yes. It's doing that right I now. was just about to mention them. We're investors, so full disclosure. But I think that is what Mythical is doing. But Mythical and Roblox, I think, are two different examples. The NFL has relationships with both. And from my, I, I actually, I'm not a gamer, but the concept of play to earn to me is interesting. Uh, I, 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 I do think there's something in that that makes sense. Um, but for the NFL, we're with Roblox and we're with Mythical because when you're doing Madden and you're in EA's world, the NFL has no ability to learn or understand really what's going on. It's just a rights fee deal. These games that are blockchain-based and, and developed with our intellectual property but geared towards engaging younger fans and bringing them into the NFL world we can learn a lot watching how they play, but also incenting them within those games to become fans of the teams uh, or of the league, or having the results of what goes on in the league that week affect what's going on in games on the platforms. So there's a lot, there's, there's a fan engagement opportunity there that I think you could never have even imagined a couple of years ago. And, and that's, at least for the NFL, you know, the NBA has no problem attracting young people to it. In the NFL, we got to make sure that we keep attracting young people and, and growing the pipeline. Well, Steve, when we saw each other at the uh, NBA All-Star Tech Summit in Cleveland, um, we were discussing how it's, it seems like many tech and media CEOs uh, were talking about the metaverse, even though I'm not sure if they all understood exactly what they were talking about. Um, I don't know if we understand it either, but... Yeah, well, what does what the metaverse, right, mean to you? Uh, and what should it mean to those of us in sports? You know, I, I guess I, I would view it as um, a metaverse might be a city. Uh, it's, not, it's not a universe. It's people developing, you know, a certain environment that'll attract a community. And, and, and so there'll be multiple metaverses, I think, as we start out. And I don't know how it ends up. Will there be hundreds of thousands of metaverses that'll attract niche segment people, maybe people who like art will be in an art metaverse and so you can, you can travel to Italy and see the great paintings in Italy and you can travel to another country and see the, the, the great uh, uh, screens in, in Japan. Um, or will, will uh, you know, three or four companies, or one company, but three or four companies dominate 
and create environments that people want to go into. And I was shocked to see that, you know, Jamie Dimon, who's a classmate, a friend of mine, you know, he, he now, they now have a, a, a Chase Bank in one of the metaverses. I, I, you remember the name of the one that he's in? Um, it's slipping my name out, but, but, but they, they have a, they have a you know, Chase Bank front and you can go hear Jamie Dimon talk inside of this metaverse after he was the first one to say that you know, crypto, crypto was dead and it was meaningless. They are now on the, on the bandwagon and have advertising inside one of the, one of the virtual worlds. So, so I think as it starts out, many people will probably develop virtual worlds. That's how I define a metaverse. And then some will lose and some will win. The ones that will win will really target people to build communities. And then maybe someday there'll be interoperability so you can link cities together into a nation and maybe a nation into a world. So Jason, you know, what, what, what's your take on this interoperability? Back in the, we were talking about, you know, the days of the, the early internet where, you know, we had walled gardens and there was always that promise of interoperability. You know, do you, is there going to be one metaverse that we end up playing in or is there going to be all the, a constellation of meta worlds, you know, that, that, uh, that we go in and out of? I think it depends on the overall direction that the metaverse takes, but usually if it's truly an ecosystem, activity centers just like the internet, just like social media, just like anything into one or a small number of places. So um, I think it'll take a while to get there, but I think eventually there's consolidation, if that makes sense. Um, I Benefits think, of scale. Yeah, of scale, exactly. I think what's really interesting is, um, and not to get too like philosophical here, is the effect that this all has on how like people and relationships evolve. You have a digital identity that is in some ways, or not in some ways, is very related to your, your physical identity, um, but becomes an increasing, uh, increasingly more common way or platform for expressing that, right? Um, and so the more that people do that, the less connected we all might become from the real you know, universe. And I think that's a really interesting sort of psychological yeah. thing that I, I don't know. I mean, I we, might, we might become more connected. You know, I was gonna say, I'll just, be good looking in my digital universe. <laughs> well, we've just gone through a kind of a two year experiment during the pandemic mm. with, a, with a sort of a, a, a version of a metaverse, yeah. right? I mean, like I'm, I'm, by the way, very much not of the mindset that the, you know, the sort of VR mediated 3D environment is the only way we can, we should be talking about the metaverse. I think the metaverse is way more broad and, and interesting and, and sort of multivalent than that. And I think in some ways, you know, a lot of the, the, what we've been doing on the internet, interacting on the internet over the last two years, Zoom calls and Microsoft Teams and all this stuff, like as, as, as sometimes grating and insane as it's been over the last couple of years is, a, is, is sort of that, right? I mean, it's, 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 it, it has trained us in a way to live in a computer-mediated kind of environment. That's a really good point. So uh, before we open it up to the, uh, the audience for Q&A. Um, I mean, I, I, one more sorry. thing on that point. I, I mean, it's interesting. I was in a meeting today, which I think we, our office hasn't been open in two years and it often opened this week. But we have some people coming back and not all people going back. But now it's a normal thing. We went in a conference room and half of the people were on the screen, half of the people were in the conference room. And it was kind of like they were there. I mean, the technology is that good that they were there. I worked six months with a, with a team of people from Boston to, uh, to buy Virgin Australian Airlines out of bankruptcy. And I'm very close friends now with th two, three people in Australia that I've never met physically. But I was on the phone, I was on the, the Zoom with them. And I'm probably just as close to them as I am with people in the Bain Capital look, we, office. So. In, the, in the video game world, we've been doing this for two decades, right? Yeah. Where, where we've been playing together in, in World of Warcraft. And a lot of times you're playing in a clan with people you've never met, but who are really good friends of yours. So I'm, I think it's going to be more fluid. I don't think there's going to be this abrupt like, entrance into, a, into the world of the metaverse. I think we're, we're easing our way in, and we have been really, if we look in the rearview mirror, for 20 years. Yeah. So we're already in the metaverse. We're sort of bleeding towards it. Well, what Mitch is saying is that particularly with games, the metaverse has existed for a long time. It's not a new thing, and people have been immersing themselves in games like World of Warcraft. Or I remember I used to play a game called SimCity when I was a little kid, where you like built this city. And I mean, literally, that was the metaverse, so it, or a version of it. Um, but I think it's been around a long time. I think the difference. People used is, to play chess across the world. I played chess exactly. on the phone with, with somebody. Yeah. That that was the earliest metaverse where you'd make a. He was hustling people. <laughs> he was hustling people. The big difference, in. though, now is it's there's every you know prediction is that it's going to expand way beyond games and it's just going to permeate everything. 
even social media is a version of it in a way. I mean, because essentially you're creating your own sort of, you know, digital profile. You have your profile pic. You have your image that you have online. People would. You mean your profile pic is not exactly who you are in person? No, not ex well. Mine's a bored ape, so it's definitely not who I am in person. But so he's a cool guy. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I'm a cool. bored ape, exactly. So, so I, the get? one, the one practical thing, just from a guy who's not a gamer, never played a, a game, doesn't would be intimidated by it. Uh, but the con this concept of the metaverse, which in reality is just, I think, enhanced or easy to access virtual reality. When you, when you um, have a venue, and if you're in an arena like Steve is, the arena's getting used 175 to 225 times a year. It can be a full-time job for most of the, day, the event day employees. In an NFL stadium, you know, you're lucky if you, we have an MLS team, so we're busier than most, but call it 20 to 25 ticketed events a year. You, when you have three to 4,000 day of event part-time employees who, and yet giving your customers a great experience, your guests a great experience, it's easy to do when you've got the same people there 200 nights a year who are making their living. It's much more difficult in our environment. And if you can, as long as they have an internet connection, maybe we have to provide them with a little something else these days. But to bring them on and have them go into the metaverse of Gillette Stadium and it, be in their position and throw scenarios at them, I, I think if we gamify it right, they'll enjoy it, but it'll make them better, uh, better ambassadors to our guests on event day. The, and the, so that's the, way, that, that's the way I've actually been thinking about the practical use of it and bringing it into sports. Interesting. I mean, the technology is amazing. You, you saw at the NBA Tech Summit, they had on stage oh, I, a coach at the NBA Tech Summit that was uh, 3D. It looked like, like I was sitting right in the front row. It looked like a real person. You, you hear it walk. It shot a basketball. Adam Silver was, taught, was interviewing this virtual being, and they used Shaq's voice. So he was interviewing a, you know, like a real person of a Shaq with all the movements. And, and you, you really couldn't tell it from, a, from if it was a real person. Oh. So, yeah. so um, we got a, a lot of interesting questions from the audience. I want to just uh, take a couple here. Um, so this one's for Mitch. Uh, it says, how do you solve the whale problem you know, that you, you refer to? How do you attract new users when it seems like uh, anyone new is playing catch up? Yeah, well, I, was, I don't think it's by running Larry David com commercials during the Super Bowl, but that's just me. I mean, I think it's going to take a lot of education. And I do believe, I think Jonathan said it earlier, um, I think sports could lead the way in, in some ways because it is mass market and sort of reaches all levels of society and if we do find some kind of utility that can serve as a as a as, as a, a sort of a, a focal point for for saying getting people to, to enable wallets and make their first ethereum purchase for example um i think that's going to be very important so I think we're going to solve it really not necessarily with a killer app, but with a number of, uh, of high utility applications um, and m maybe applications which disguise the fact that they are, they don't foreground the fact that, hey, you're buying an NFT, um, but rather you're buying a ticket. That ticket happens to be on the blockchain and, okay, you need to enable this wallet in order to accomplish that transaction, which isn't that different from the way some of the, the mobile ticketing is currently working, the way in, we do it in our stadium in MLS. We require you to link your account into your LAFC account and your tickets reside in that account. And, you know, I could imagine an application like that where, where it sort of backgrounds the fact that it's an NFT so you don't have that social friction being something very useful in, in, in at least cracking that whale problem, but it's going it's to take a while. Another question uh, from the audience is, um, how do you plan to onboard and educate fans on the perceived benefits and the risks uh, of the blockchain? Looking at me? Yeah. <laughs> I, um, smart people that work with me are going to figure that out. I, 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 um, I know I, it's a, good, it's a good question. We're not, we're not yet putting our tickets on the blockchain. My, you know, there's not enough. Today, I don't think a blockchain exists where you could do the amount of transactions in that 24-hour period before most games in the secondary market 
at least NFL games, pretty active. And I th my guess is we're still a year or two away, but when, when we're not, we're gonna have to help everybody get a wallet, and we're gonna have to figure out what blockchain we're gonna be on, and I, I, I think that's a, that's a real issue too, because people aren't gonna want a gazillion, <laughs> people are gonna wanna live on just a handful of right. blockchains. They're not gonna want 50 different blockchains. It's kind of a natural and, monopoly. Right, right. and I think sports can help drive and dictate that, and you know, I, the leagues and teams. I, well, look, look. I mean, I think Dapper. I think Roam was a Dapper. I think he was smart. I, I haven't heard him say this. I mean, I think he's very smart. Uh, but ultimately, I'm sure in his mind is if I bring sports, because Dapper has deals obviously with the NBA and with the NFL, and you know, I bring him to Flow, and who knows what happens in the future. I'm sure that's in the back of his mind. Don't. I've never heard him say that. But, but that makes sense. And then, you know, you got these technologies, which I know nothing about. Mitch could comment on, like, wormhole, which are, you know, interchain vehicles. I don't even know what you call them. But, I mean, it's, I, I find it hard to, I, I was going to say, I find it hard intellectually to really understand that today because it seems the antithesis of what the blockchain is about. So, anyhow, I don't know how we're going to educate other than, helping them give them a wallet and, and say, you know, well, if some people on our staff will it'll be them. It'll be in our interest to educate and make it, sure it's secure it, it, and make sure it works out. So, absolutely. You know, we, we can't leave ticket fans, you know, holding the bag, basically. So he, that'll help drive, you know, the protocols. Here's the thing, though. This comes back to the point I was making earlier about, like, full decentralization. I think it's going to be a challenge. So what do you do as a sports franchise owner when people who bought tickets from you say, I accidentally transferred this ticket to a bad address, or I can't get in because I forgot my security phrase to my wallet. Um, so you have to still, I think, have some sort of centralization where somebody's able to help them recover it, and it's not just lost forever. Otherwise, no matter how well you educate them, there's human error. People are going to make mistakes. Right now in the crypto world, because it's such a small community, people just accept hacks happen, rug pulls happen. It's just part of playing in the game. Um, but I think once it gets mainstream, that's just not going to be acceptable to people anymore and not going to be acceptable to organizations like yours to have fans that somehow can't access their tickets because it's on a fully decentralized uh, system. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it comes back to, comes back to the fan. Um, so last question. This is a great one uh, from someone in our audience. Um, so what are you guys putting 1% of your net worth in today? <laughs> so why don't we start with Jason and go down the line? Um, you know, I would say right now, first of all, I never would give any investment advice, but I think that 1% is probably even low. Um, I would, if I were anybody with, you know, liquid capital to invest, have higher than 1%. I don't know how high it should go in uh, various blockchain plays. I think that, you know, crypto, um, NFTs, just all that sort of stuff in general. Um, personally, I own a lot of like the blue chip projects like CryptoPunks and Bored Apes. I'm, I've gotten, uh, you know, not, not as much success on the more speculative stuff. So I typically like to see something that already has traction and already has community built up before I'll jump in. Um, sometimes if Gary Vee tells me to jump in, I will, although that's always an interesting proposition. But um, typically, I think that, you know, something that already has traction is a safer bet, just like a stock that's blue chip would be a safer bet Steve? or an artist. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in diversification, but, you know, I, I would, I'm weighting my portfolio towards biotech, uh, heavy biotech, and, and then uh, technology in general, because I think we're only in the, in the beginning phases of this blockchain phase and technology. And if you see what happened in the last 20 years with the Internet, I think you're going to see that happen in the next 20 years. How about you, Mitch? I'm not telling, <laughs> um, but uh, I am long ETH. Okay. Hey, the, the ruble's way down. <laughs> you can buy the ruble really cheap. Uh, I, I, again, I, well, actually, that is true. I don't know if I'd buy it. I don't even know how you buy it. But uh, the, I don't give investment advice either, but I do think when I think about blockchain and crypto, I'm not smart enough to know which projects work or which things work, but I know just to pick a company like Coinbase, 
you, you say Coinbase is going to win in the end, I think. And I have no idea whether it's cheap or not. I don't know how to value it. I've bought that stock recently when I bought just because, in my mind, it's a way of playing the entire space. I agree with that. Great. Well, we're out of time. And so uh, if you could join me in uh, giving our, uh, audience, our, our panelists uh, a great hand. Thank you. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.